0: Good morning, good afternoon. Thank you for joining us today. This is Colin Hamilton from BMO's commodity research team. I'm joined by my colleague Rory Townsend today, and we're going to run you through the key points of our research report. Circle in on a material opportunity that we published yesterday in conjunction with uh, our colleagues Kimberly Mervyn and uh, Robin Fiedler. Um, this report discusses the circular economy, which is one of those phrases we hear a lot, but is not always well understood. It's particularly in terms of the implications. So, over the next 20 minutes or so, we'll cover circular economy principles, uh, the circular economy score that we've derived, the impact of regulation, and examples of how certain sectors may change, particularly in regards to the impact on metals, and um, we'll be using the slides, which hopefully you can see on your screen, uh, we'll also try and leave time for a Q&A at the end. In terms of the slides, they will move forward automatically, you do not need to do anything, uh, but please do ask questions at any time. So to me, the most interesting thing about the circular economy is that it is natural behavior in many ways, and it makes good, practical, and indeed economic sense for consumers, for corporates, and for governments. And as a decarbonization tactic, well, it doesn't involve the technological quantum leaps that we see in other areas. It's more of a mindset change, and really facilitating the processes involved is the key thing that needs to happen. Uh, With this, I'm going to pass over to Rory to talk you through uh, the first part of our presentation on on the circular economy principles and uh, some of the regulation side. Rory.
1: Great. Thanks, Colin, and hello, everyone, today. Uh, So, yeah, ultimately, what is the circular economy? So, as the name suggests... The circular economy is actually premised on a closed-loop economic system, whereby essentially, as opposed to the traditional linear take-make-dispose or take-make-waste model, the world moves towards a more circular model, where there is less waste generated, the requirement for raw materials is reduced, and we remove the dependency on non-renewable resources. Now, In its theoretical extreme, a perfect circle would imply not needing any raw materials and producing zero waste. But naturally, the world isn't perfect. So rather than focusing on a theoretical utopia, we're just going to focus on what is achievable and some of the opportunities that it actually could bring. It's safe to say that recycling is actually commonly thought of as synonymous with the circular economy. And while it is certainly integral component, It is really just one of the circular solutions, the other three routes making up what is often called the 4R approach, reduce, reuse, and remanufacture. Often the view is that metals will lose out when it comes to the circular economy. And whilst we do expect increased scrap utilization, we also believe that metals' innate ability to be infinitely recycled will be their unique differentiator compared to other everyday materials. So what is clear is that each metal is at a different stage in their circular journey. From the poster child, lead, which through heightened regulations since really the early 70s has seen secondary lead supply overtaking primary supply in around 2004, to other metals such as the lithiums of the world that are really just getting off of the starting blocks. But their advantage is that they do have a bit of a path to follow. So, why is the circular economy important? Well, according to the UN, the global population has increased by around 28% since the year 2000 to roughly 7.9 billion people in 2021. And yet population growth here on the left-hand chart looks relatively benign compared to metal demand growth. The simple conclusion being that the world has just become more commodity intensive and as a result, the pressure on raw material markets has never been greater. It's estimated that humankind currently uses 74% more biological resources than the planet's ecosystem can regenerate, arguably one of the more bleaker statistics in this report and in the webcast today. So undoubtedly, yes, we are going to see secondary supply increasing. We are going to see more reuse of metal components, and indeed there will be a push to reduce use of raw materials where possible. But then given the underlying demand pressures in many markets and factoring in its becoming increasingly challenging and indeed costly to develop new mining projects, we actually see this process as imperative. At the same time, the more ambitious climate targets and even greater pushes towards meeting the UN Sustainable Development Goals will require more metal. That is an inescapable fact that we just keep circling back to. And it isn't just things like the energy transition. It's also social and economic objectives like sustainable cities, clean water and sanitation, industry innovation and infrastructure that will all require more metals. Now, in an effort to get into this sort of more circular mindset, we assess different end uses on five main criteria in order to produce our BMO Circular Index score, namely looking at an item's recyclability with things like wind turbines actually scoring relatively poorly on this metric, due to fiberglass blades that weigh on their overall circular score. An item's reusability, with things like furniture and clothing actually scoring pretty well, given that they're often discarded before they're no longer fit for purpose. Then we have considered how easy an item is to deconstruct. And on this metric, perhaps unsurprisingly, buildings do indeed struggle. They are, after all, not the easiest things to pull down and then strip apart, which is why we see significant opportunities here when it comes to designing for deconstruction, a topic which Colin will elaborate on later. Now, standardization is an interesting one, particularly when you consider something like backtruths, a market undergoing such dramatic growth and innovation happening at such a rapid pace whether it be the cathode, the anode, the shape, the side. This means that standardization is really very low and in turn makes recovering the raw materials more challenging. We then finally have the life cycle, with white goods broadly falling down on this metric, given they're not really designed to last forever. But actually, given the technological enhancements that can happen over time, maybe this isn't such a bad thing. And maybe just the way in which we consume white goods needs to change. The humble washing machine, as many of you have read the port, will see that it leads the way based on our circular score. With relatively simplistic design and few components lending themselves nicely to being torn apart. And many of the components are also readily available for reuse and remanufacturing. With around 40% of the material composition made up of steel. Unfortunately, the reality is, if left to market forces, the shift to a more circular economy will be far too protracted. As is often the case, it will be regulation and societal pressure that force innovation, and actually, in many cases, it's just a change in behavior that's needed. It can be something as simple as removing the plastic packaging on your vegetables, which I'm sure as many of us in the UK have seen has happened over the past couple of years, or removing the second plastic lid on your yogurt pot, I mean, the film is probably sufficient. Not quite the quantum leap that is often the perception when moving to a more circular world. The war on plastic is one example of the circular economy, which has been thrust into the media spotlight in recent years. And as a result, governments have really stepped up their efforts to cut down on plastic waste. The European Commission are now targeting 55% of plastic packaging waste to be recycled by 2030, up from around forty percent at present. Now markedly recycling improving sort of the recycling rates in plastic actually faces many similar problems to that of metals. Namely things like quality issues, affordability, you know, inadequate recycling of infrastructure. All of the vibrant packaging that's designed to entice us in actually makes recycling incredibly more difficult and often leads to plastic recycling being called downcycled to lower lower value-add applications such as carpet backing. Now, there are those exciting advancements which we touch upon in the body of the report around chemical recycling, which may well be the silver bullet to plastic recycling. But beyond recycling, upstream innovation is about totally rethinking the packaging, the product, and indeed the business model. Some of these changes, like label-free bottles, like paper-based packaging, refills for cleaning products, they're all happening already. But it's only happened because investors and consumers are now more conscious of sustainability. Other innovations, which are generally fascinating, are some of the substitutes that we're seeing for plastic. Although it is important that these solutions are thought through to avoid sort of, you know, this circular washing and actually creating a new problem. The rise of bioplastics is a perfect example, and one I'm guilty of as well. Initially, when they were released, it sort of gave every buyer peace of mind that they were doing their bit for the environment. Unfortunately, this plastic impersonator often only breaks down in industrial composters. And given the shortage of industrial composters, poor infrastructure to sort, and really a lack of knowledge around how to dispose of them properly, it means that, unfortunately, often they end up in landfill or perhaps arguably worse, they end up in regular recycling and then they contaminate the actual plastic. And finally from me, just a little bit about glass. Now glass is quite an interesting topic because it is extremely recyclable, but it's not actually that widely recycled everywhere. And this is despite some pretty big enhancements in terms of the sorting technology which have proven crucial to lifting recycling rates north of 90% in some European countries. I was generally perhaps surprised, but you know, perhaps I shouldn't have been, that some of these sorting technologies being employed in the glass industries are actually pretty fascinating and pretty amazing. They have sensors which are able to detect and then eject tiny contaminants for a continuous stream of millimeter-sized recycled glass at a rate of 100,000 pieces per minute, They have X-ray sensors to analyze the element-specific X-ray fluorescence of particles, which then help to target the removal of metals and metal-containing glass. Near-infrared spectrometers and electromagnetic sensors can detect particles of plastic and metal, which are then ejected with these tiny little puffs of air. It really is truly fascinating. Again, there are lots of ambitious targets by industry bodies and governments akin to their world of plastics. But what is often dragging on improved recycling rates is us, the consumer. Countries which ultimately fall at the lower end of this chart you know, by European nations and in some states in the U.S. as well is because too much glass is just still simply being discarded. And that is the role the consumer will have to play in moving towards a more circular world. It's not going to happen for us. Behaviors simply have to adapt but perhaps, you know, not by as much as as we may have initially thought. And with that, I'd like to pass it over to Colin. Uh,
0: wonderful. Uh, thank you so much, Rory. Um, and for those of you, uh, if there's any issues with the slides on the webcast, we are now going on to slide seven. Uh, so if you can't see slide seven, please do, uh, please do control it yourself. Um, now, we've, we've talked about the principles. We've talked about where we want to get to. How do we facilitate? How do we make life easy? for people to think about circular behavior. And I do think that some of the models we've got used to have to change. And one thing to, to talk about first of all is leasing. The best way to get material back and to get a closed loop system is to have the same person or company involved at the start and at the end of the useful life. So already we have leasing in a number of areas in the global economy. But I do think it's going to become even more widespread as the pressure on manufacturers starts to build uh, to exhibit more circular behaviour, and there's an economic benefit to them oh, for reusing items. Where we talked about the to the old humble washing machine uh, that that uh, drum and that could be reused many times again. It does not wear out. So if you think of it, if where the owners are taking that material back, well, that is going to become a key item and a key area. So. Uh, whether it be autos, whether it be phones, whether it be white goods, we are now moving towards a leasing model, and uh, the goods you have in your home, you'll be leasing. You'll be borrowing for a while, and there's obviously implications to that, and I'll run through some of the sectors that may be impacted a little bit, little bit later on. How do you get the consumer to do this, though? I mean, how do you get that practical behaviour to come through? Good old-fashioned economics is the best way of doing it. Uh, for those of you who can see it in slide 7, I've put up a, a glass bottle there. That, that, uh When I was a boy, that was my currency. Uh, That is an iron brew bottle, a good Scottish drink. And for each one of those you took back to the newsagent, you got two pence, which tells you how old I am, basically. Um, Now, that that incentivized you to bring that material back. That incentivized that closed-loop system. I think we're going to move to a different way now. And I think there's some interesting factors here. I think a digital currency can actually become hugely important. Let's think about that. Um, let's think of a situation where, let's say you're a consumer, you take your white good back to the council, and in your digital wallet, you're given currency, which you can then go and, and re-spend. So rather than just getting your two pence and getting actual money, you're getting digital money. China's going to lead the way in this. Uh, many of you who, who know me know I've talked about the digital R&B before, but if we think of the Chinese model of having the, the hub-and-spoke approach, I can easily see a situation whereby uh, goods come back into the depot in China. The digital RMB is put in the wallet. There's um, 14 days to spend on certain Chinese brands. It plays into a lot of uh, President Xi's philosophies. Now, I think as if that were to become successful, you could see it rolled out actually across a number of areas in the world. So, therefore, that will start to boost the, the consumer, get the consumer more involved, and I do think, as I say, the leasing model, it could become very important. It doesn't necessarily mean we're consuming less goods. It probably just means we're upgrading them a bit more. And there's also implications for that for insurance, for logistics, and many other areas. Rory mentioned it before. The real challenge here is buildings. Um, plastics get a lot of the press when it comes to circular economy. But buildings consume 3 billion tons of raw materials each year. And 75% of this, at the moment, ends up in landfill. It really is that example of the the take-make-waste uh, model. And the biggest problem with buildings is there's too many parties involved: architect, project manager, uh, engineers, building owners, construct uh, construction workers, uh, um, subcontractors. Every one of them has slightly different agendas, um, slightly different economics, and as a result, uh, you get the conflict. Means that you don't get the best behaviour now. Circular behaviour or designing for deconstruction really needs to be at the start of the planning process. And if it's done right, it can make what's a a legacy problem for a building owner at the moment, i.e. you've got a a structure on a piece of land that is valuable that you need to get rid of, to a situation where you have a legacy asset and you can actually recover a lot of that cost. Um, It will change how we think about building design. We will move towards many more steel and timber frames for standard houses. Uh, probably office and, and commercial buildings will be steel framed with precast um, concrete slabs. In situ poured concrete is very hard to um, very hard to break down, and even more, um, it also causes a lot of carbon emissions in its transportation. So with that, we'll move towards a precast model, uh, with designed off site, with designed in the modular way, as Rory talked about before, and we are looking at things being flexible and easy to deconstruct. So if you think in the simplest terms we'll see structures bolted together, not welded together. I also think there'll be a clampdown on things like over-engineering. Uh, at the moment, engineers like to sleep at night, which you can understand, but also it leads to very wasteful use of materials. I do think that we may see a, a trend towards uh, clamping down on that a little bit more, maybe even changing building codes, depending on how aggressive governments have to be uh, around uh, carbon reduction. There's also a big potential for metals here. So i put it on the right-hand side there of slide 8, Um, The building component, and we can look at it being circular versus the linear alternative. And this is where metal's recyclability comes into itself. Uh, Rather than having plastic or or PVC window frames or gutters, you can easily have metal ones. And we actually see strong potential there for underlying metal's growth coming from that area. Just to move on now to... um, a new area, and one point where we're getting a lot of questions is obviously on lithium-ion battery recycling. Uh, lithium-ion batteries, of course, very nascent, um, really only starting their journey. At the moment, less than 5% are recycled at the present time. Now, to increase those recycling rates, and there's a good report published by my colleague Robin Fiedler on this, we need to see a mixture of legislation, incentives, design homogeneity, And as the end-of-life scrap pool comes through, well, again, there's going to be a case of ownership. So there'll be a reuse involved, but there'll also be a a lot of recycling. We're looking at that recycling availability growing to about 2.7 million tonnes by 2030. And there's a precedent. The big advantage to the lithium-ion battery industry is that it goes into the auto side. And the auto industry is actually very good at circular economy behaviour. And there's a precedent. Uh, Rory mentioned before, it is the lead industry. Uh, Lead-acid batteries at the moment, we're recycling about 98% of them that go into the auto side. And for lead, as we look in the right-hand side there, it was 2004 that secondary lead overtook primary lead in terms of uh, market share. And we see that as a pathway for many other industries going forward. There's a very important precedent there. Now, when we're thinking about metals in the circular economy, yeah, the natural reaction is that, oh, this is going to be a challenge. Uh, It's greater recycling. It's a threat to market dynamics. And as we mentioned before, yes, it will impinge on the need for virgin raw materials, but that is uh, going to be crucial in actually solving the problem where we're finding it harder to mine, we're finding it harder to find new resources, and it is becoming more expensive. So taking back what we have and, and reusing that and designing it better it's going to be crucial. We'll put an example up there on steel demand in a circular scenario. And again, this is keeping everything else equal. But you can see from substitutions part of it, thrifting is actually in many cases a bigger part, which is, again, is taking out some of the over-engineering we talked about before. But we see potential by 2030 that you could save about 200 million tons of steel from base case um, in, in a circular scenario. And a copper side, well, if we get more rough, uh, scrap supply back, it can start to displace, again, that primary side, but it doesn't necessarily mean underlying demand as a whole falls. In fact, we may actually see that increase as we see. And the, the other interesting thing for the metals mining sector is that it gives it an opportunity to actually integrate better into downstream value chains, which is something we've really not seen for the past 20 years. And I would say that um, there's actually a lot of skill sets that the metals and mining industry has that are really valuable for the circular economy. Optimizing material, optimizing recoveries, is something that comes naturally to the metals and mining sector. It's something that will be crucial uh, in the circular economy. Very briefly here, just to talk about the energy savings potential, we've used the aluminium industry here as an example. And effectively, we see, I mean, to cut a long story short, we see the energy saving from circular behaviour in the aluminium side, to be almost equivalent to the total energy consumed by Africa at the present time, and that is, I mean, over the next ten years or so. So, this one, if when we're looking at uh, if when we're looking at this report again in ten years' time, this will be the, the key sector because it tends to have shorter life, um, shorter product life. It tends to be highly recyclable, and this is going to be a very interesting one for the scrap pool is growing quite quickly. This is really the one where circular economy behaviour in metals will come through first, and there is clear benefits from the energy consumption side. Just lastly, I wanted to touch on some of the other areas. So we've talked a bit about the metals mining side, but where else are we going to see uh, benefits and opportunities from circular economy behaviour? Well, the obvious one is materials handling and sorting. Getting the right material to the right process stream is crucial to non-destructive testing and process equipment, magnets, spectrometers... um, You can even see a situation where individual households are given basic material characterization equipment for free in the same way that utilities, for example, have provided smart meters to monitor energy use. We'll see upcycling. Um, We've already started to see uh, upcycling firms like TerraCycle, for example, come through. we see many more of them in terms of waste management solutions and reselling apps. Um, And this is where big tech, if you want, meets the, the circular economy. And we're already seeing a prevalence of these apps reselling consumer and even capital goods. And that can really start to be leveraged at the corporate level as well for second-use equipment. Delivery logistics I mentioned before. I mean, if you think of it, your Amazon van coming through spends a lot of its time empty or, or, or half full. There was an increased emphasis on returning goods to the manufacturer at end of life. There's clearly potential for improved utilization rates at operations. This is kind of like the milk cart model, if you want, just on a much larger scale. And as we move towards this leasing model, well, owning owning a product through the life cycle, the companies themselves will want insurance to make sure they get it back. And consumers themselves, well, will see more accidental damage insurance to cover the fact that they do not own that good anymore. Sustainable finance, I mean, uh, the technologies we're talking about here will need finance to scale up. And the savings from reusing resources really do offer some opportunities for pretty good returns. But again, we have to make sure that the the product is right and there'll be a lot of checking, and this is where sensors come in, particularly for batteries, if you think of use of batteries through life, but even in in terms of things like uh, condition monitoring of of goods and equipment. And when we take it to the corporate level, well, we see a situation where third-party auditors will come through and certify circular economy behavior, and that's a natural development. Companies will start to use that in terms of marketing. And when we talk about marketing, well, There's a lot of opportunity here for marketing firms to aid the relearning we all need to go through to get circular economy behavior through. And some just little low-impact psychological aids. And governments have been good at uh, employing communications and marketing firms to do this in other areas. We see this happening again for circular economy. And lastly, and this is where metals and mining industry can, as I say, get involved, is around materials process engineers and getting systems to maximize those recoveries. And that can really be extended to value chains for reprocessing, I mean, whether by consulting services or, or by vertical integration. So I hope that's been useful to you today. Um, just as a reference, you can ask questions still. Uh, um, Rory and I do have a bit of time here for Q&A overall. Um, but I hope you this has been useful to you. And I would just pause there just to see if we have uh, any questions coming through. Well, while we're waiting, I mean, Rory, I might ask you a question. Just to um, how, when, when you've gone through the the work on uh, this report, and Rory's done a lot heavier listening in this report, I should point out, uh, Can I, what would you think the key learning point was? What, what surprised you the most?
1: I mean, wow, I found it all fairly surprising, to be honest. I think I was probably in the masses with, with quite a lot of preconceived notions as to what the circular economy really meant, and probably, you know, with a bit of that black-and-white view that, you're either a circular and you're not using any raw materials and you're not producing any waste or you're not and For me, really, what the main takeaway was all of the in between journey and actually you know looking at all of the metals that are their different stages on their circular journeys, and actually how then we can go to just closing that loop a little bit more, becoming a little bit more circular now you know it doesn't have to mean that we're sort of chasing this perfect circle, as I mentioned at the very beginning. I think it's the process, and I think that part of it, for me, was sort of the inevitable takeaway and something that, you know, perhaps it's not such a negative that we move towards a circular economy that, you know, that I I initially thought. Thank you very
0: much, Roy. Um, um, We'll take this as the last call for any questions that people may want to submit. If there are none, well, I, I would like to just say thank you very much. Please do read the report. Please do uh, sit down. There's a lot of information in there. And Rory and I would be delighted uh, with Kimberly and Robin to answer any questions that you may have over the coming weeks or to think about how we went about the process of, um, uh, of, of The what of is a very broad subject matter. Um, well, I do actually have one question coming through asking uh, what from a policy and taxation perspective uh, should we be looking out for in the coming years, uh, Rory? Do you want to um, answer on that?
1: Yeah, sure. And I think something similar to what we've seen in sort of you know plastics and 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 in glass. I think you know we can expect to see ultimately something sort of almost resembling that you know in the sort of the the metals and mining space. But I think you know it's going to come through, and we're already seeing it to to some degree. You know, we've seen the increasing import restrictions on scrap. You know, we've seen that, you know, sort of initially in China and now sort of, you know, flowing through into Malaysia. And also, you know, we're starting to see the sort of the export restrictions as well. So, you know, sort of uh, these developed world economies really looking to preserve scrap as that sort of low-carbon low, sh- low carbon strategic resource. You know, we saw Arubis announced yesterday they're they're building another sort of secondary smelter in the U.S. to deal with, you know, domestic scrap. And I think that's just, you know, a sign of Sorry about that everyone, don't worry, we're not on fire. It was just the afternoon test. And yeah, as I saw as ahead, you know, I think it's just the fun of the times. I think it's going to be sort of around scrap where we get a bit more, you know, restrictions and things and perhaps, you know, a few more targets around that. Um, I really, for me, that's, that's that's where I see sort of the policy angle coming through. Colin, I don't know, do you have anything to add on, on that sort of things?
0: No, I think that's good. And I think it flows through to the other question we've got about um, enforcing it and ensuring a consistent supply of feedstock. Um, I do think that, I mean, scrap and recycled material is that low-carbon resource that the developed world is long off, and developed world will have to really drive a lot of this behaviour. And uh, with that... That protectionism can help and can hinder. Um, It will help the developed economies lead the way, and that behaviour does then tend to flow down. But you could argue uh, it maybe slows down the process in emerging markets, which is where a lot of the the gains can be made in the future. I do think that in terms of ensuring this uh, consistent supply, it is about behavioural change. It is about, and, and particularly at the Consumer level for goods is the economics help, I think facilitating that through economics, which is why I mentioned the, the digital currency is a, a big facilitator of that. And I think in terms of the corporate side, it's going to come as pressure from shareholders, like uh, like many of you on the call. Um, and it helps with many of the ESG and decarbonization metrics uh, that the companies themselves will have to will have to uh, disclose. And as a result of that, you'll see their behavior change. And I think, as I say, it's, it actually makes sense. It is the the uh, it is the makes economic sense, and it is the right thing to do. And I think companies generally understand that. Um, one last question I've seen come in: uh, How has the report impacted your view on demand and the, and the various metals? Well, we we've always been factoring in quite an, a large element of recycling. But what I suppose surprised me was when I looked at the building side um, was that the potential for um, Many areas to design more metals actually into the uh, the building, and that's um, uh, that did change my view. Um, I would suggest that you can perhaps see as much as 15 to 20% extra metal in some cases, particularly if we do move away from uh, in situ uh, concrete frames. So I think that could be uh, an interesting dynamic. Um, in terms of the one that may be affected most, aluminium is gaining still a lot of market share in a number of areas uh, because it's lightweight. And if we think of things like packaging, and as I say, uh, some aesthetic items and, and minor structural items that really uh, can get a big benefit there. And with that, I'd like to thank you, everyone who's uh, who's uh, taken the time to listen to us today. Please, as I say, do read the report, do come back to us with any other questions, and have a fantastic weekend. Thank you. That was Metal Matters, presented by BMO Capital Markets Equity Research. You can subscribe to Metal Matters on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers, or visit our website at researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com to listen to more episodes, including our other podcast series, BMO Equity Research, in tune. If you have feedback or suggestions for upcoming podcasts, please do share it with me at Colin. Hamilton at BMO.com. To access our full disclosures, please visit Research Global forward slash public hyphen disclosure.